Well, most of you know that a couple of summers ago, I uh, was forced to change my diet. Um, I was and really uh, continue to be a fan of salt. But unfortunately, my body, particularly my heart, said I don't need any more salt, particularly in large quantities. Um, And I was really confused about all that, so I began to track my salt intake, and then my eyes uh, were open to what the problem was, because I was, um, as I began to read labels and check the nutritional content, I realized that the amount of salt I was eating was two or three times (laughs) The daily allowance. Um, and now that I'm more informed, I realize that I'm not quite sure why uh, sugar and fat and caloric numbers uh, seem to get all the limelight, um, particularly when sodium packs such a, a punch as far as uh, heart health is concerned. I mean, it's not listed on menus, um, it's on every table. Um, You don't have to add it to your food because there's so much in it to begin with. And I get it because, you know, without it, food's kind of bland. Uh, That's what they call low-salt, no-salt diets in the hospital. It's a bland diet, right? Who who wants to eat a bland diet? And you say, okay, what does that have to do with the passage that John just read um, from chapter 8? verse 20 through 9, 17. Well, I want you to hear these words from Michael Brown and Zach Keel. They wrote, The Noahic covenant tends to be like salt at the dinner table. It's not mentioned in the menu and sometimes is not passed around the table, but it is always present. And then they say this, For without it, the whole dinner suffers. You see, the Noahic covenant tends to get overlooked. Sometimes it's rejected. Uh, It's probably a little harsh, um, but it's purposefully skipped over and neglected because it's not a redemptive covenant. And we in reform circles love redemptive covenants. We want to talk about redemptive covenants. And so we overlook the Noahic covenant. um, But the problem is when we overlook the Noahic covenant, the covenant theology suffers. And it suffers because covenant theology is, um, it's incomplete without it. it. It's a must. The Noahic covenant is, is, again, is not a covenant of, Uh, Special grace or saving grace that results in salvation. Uh, It's a covenant of common grace that results in goodwill. So so it's not a salvific covenant or a redemptive covenant uh, that brings salvation to God's people. It's a covenant of common grace that brings goodwill to everyone. To all of mankind. It's not just a covenant with the church. It's a covenant with the church and the world. It's not just a covenant for the saved. It's it's a covenant for both the saved and the unsaved. But it's an indispensable covenant. 
It's an indispensable to it's indispensable to the covenant of grace because it assures us of the stability and the predictability of life and the progression of time for the purpose of bringing about God's plan of redemption that has always been his intention and will always be his intention. Now I'm sure you've noticed that John began reading in chapter 8, verse 20, and and verses 20 to 22 were part of our text last week, but it's also going to be a part of our text this week because it's a bridge between the two chapters. And it naturally concludes chapter 8, and it naturally introduces chapter 9. And what we're going to draw out of those first three verses is going to be different than we drew out of them last week. Okay, so that was purposeful. And our outline tonight really it has four points. We're going to look at the continuity, the promise, the covenant, and the sign. Right? The continuity, the promise, the covenant, and the sign. And children, you'll find your words in their normal place. And as is, is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Okay? Uh, Heavenly Father, in these moments, would you give us humble and contrite spirits? Would you give us eyes and ears to hear Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of your word. We pray, Father, this evening that the, the, the word as it is preached, it would not return void. That you would do with it as you desire. That you would meet your word with your spirit and work within us. Transform us. I pray, Father, we'd be convicted and edified and refreshed and comforted. I pray as always that you would grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you, good for your church this evening. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Use me as you see fit. And I ask these things for the sake of Christ and for the good of his church. Amen. Well, let's begin first with the continuity. Um, I've mentioned on a couple of occasions that the flood can be the flood story can be divided into two halves. Uh, the first, of course, beginning in chapter six, verse nine, and working through the end of chapter seven. And that theme is a theme of cre- uh, of decreation. And then in verse one of chapter eight through chapter nine, verse seventeen, where we are tonight, uh, it's the theme of recreation. And it's important for us to understand that. That recreation was not a starting over from scratch. Uh, and children, I, I, kind of just wanted to ask, I thought about this this week. Do you, do you, have you ever heard that phrase, starting over from scratch? Those of you that bake uh, may have heard it before. But uh, it means uh, that when, when we start over from scratch, that we're starting over from the very beginning with the basics. And so when I say that God wasn't starting over from scratch, what I mean is that God uh, did not go back to a point where there was nothing and then start over and create something out of nothing. What he did was reinstate what he had established prior to the flood. Uh, One author put it this way. He said, if Genesis 1 to 2 describes an inauguration, while Genesis 9 describes a restoration. So God's desire was to restore and to continue what he had already begun. And we can see this in the continuity in a couple of ways. One is in the continuity between Noah and Adam. 
Both Noah and Adam, you may not know, but both walked with God. Uh, Both received a promised blessing. Uh, Both were given dominion over the animals. Both were workers of the soil. Both sinned through fruit. Both had three sons. And both had a son who was cursed. We also see this continuity between the world prior to the flood and the world after the flood. And I want to list a few of those things. We're going to go into a little more detail with a few of them, but I just simply want to list them now. Before and after the flood, time and seasons were stable and predictable. God emphasized that mankind was created in His image. God blessed mankind. God commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply. God gave mankind dominion over the animals. He provided food for mankind. He restricted certain food. He protected life. Since penalty presence and power was a reality, and all mankind was under the curse of Adam. Miles Van Pelt summarizes very well when he wrote, When the old world emerged from the waters of the chaotic deep, God shaped and governed that world by His Word and then through those made in His image. So it is, as this new world emerged from the waters of the flood, God again shaped and governed it through His Word and those made in His image. God restored the principle of common grace. He renewed the cultural mandate and confirmed His covenant with creation. Now I start there, or I start here, because I believe this continuity shows us that the problem was not with God's plan. The problem was in the heart of man. God's intention has always been, and we've, we've talked about this since we began our study. Actually, we've talked about this since our study in Leviticus. God's plan has always been the same. He desired to dwell with His people. He wanted to dwell with them, and He wanted to be in their midst. And God originally placed man, represented by Adam, in the garden to begin that relationship with Him. And it was a relationship that God chose to have with mankind out of the good intention of His, of his will and, and the good intention of His purpose because there was nothing Adam had done. There was nothing man had done to earn it. There was absolutely no merit within Adam. But there was also, we, we mentioned this, that there was also no demerit in Adam either. There was nothing he had done to prevent the relationship. So, In other words, God did not have to overcome sin in the garden. Prior to chapter 3, things changed, of course, but prior to chapter 3, before the fall, God did not have to overcome sin. But remember, His plan is a plan of redemption. And God could have started over. He could have started over from scratch and recreated something out of nothing. He could have even recreated man and made him holy and righteous again. But He didn't. His plan was an eternal plan of redemption that he had determined to continue with Noah, who was not only absent of merit, he was full of demerit. And God did so in order that his only, his one and only son, the holy and righteous God-man, could and would overcome sin, not only for Adam, but for Noah and for you. So that's the continuity. 
Now let's look at the promise. Let's read again verses 20 to 22 of chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So God, having graciously um, determined that Noah's sacrifices were acceptable to him, God made a promise. And it wasn't a promise that Noah heard, at least at first. And he didn't share it with him. He simply kept it to himself. But even though it was something that Noah didn't hear, even though it was something that God made within himself, and I read one, uh, uh, at one point this week, I read somewhere that it was only heard within heaven. It was a promise only made within heaven. But even so, it was still a binding promise. It still was a promise with covenantal character. And that covenantal promise was to both not do something as well as to do something. Despite that mankind was no different after the flood than it was before the flood. And that the depravity of man continued uh, and would always be present within a fallen world. God promised that he would never again judge the world by water. This is something he wasn't going to do, but he also said he was going to maintain the natural order and the natural rhythm of things and of the seasons, which was what he was going to do. And what God promised not to do and what he promised to do had absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with man's merit or demerit, his righteousness or his wickedness or whether he did deeds that were good or evil. In other words, it had nothing to do with his performance. The promise had everything to do with the kind intention of the will and purposes of God. It had everything to do with His mercy and grace. And it was a promise of undeserved kindness, regardless of spiritual status. It was a covenantal promise of, covenant, uh, of common grace. For all of mankind. Because all fall short. All, all, all sin. And fall short of the glory of God. And are deserving of His wrath and judgment. Without exception. And this common grace. Does more than restrain evil. The evil of men. And it does more than restrain the wrath of God. And it does more than suspend his judgment until the fullness of time when Christ will come and judge both the living and the dead. This common grace also puts God's marvelous benevolence on display. Through his common grace, he bestows his goodness to all men. And that goodness that he displays to all men actually elicits goodness from men. Causing them to want to act for the common good. 
John Murray summarizes it, summarizes it this way. He said, common grace is every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. So that's the promise. Now let's look at the covenant. I said a moment ago that the promise wasn't heard by Noah. But yet it was still a a, a binding promise. It was still covenantal in nature. And I said that because of what follows in verses 1 to 17 of chapter 9. Right in the middle of that chapter, right in the middle of that that text, of that section, uh, verse 9 says this. Behold... I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And the word Moses used for covenant there in that, in that verse means to make or cut. It does not mean to make or cut a covenant. The word that he used actually means to confirm or to continue a covenant that has already been established or already exists. So the question we have to ask is, what covenant is he referring to? And the answer is the covenantal promise he made in chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. And this covenant, as all covenants do, have parties and they have obligations and blessings. The parties, of course, include God who made the promise and Noah. But the second party... Noah isn't just Noah. The second party isn't just Noah. It also included Noah and his offspring. Ladies, that common language we've told you to look for as as we study through the covenants. Noah and his offspring. But the second party was not just Noah and his offspring either. It also included all of humanity who would descend from him. Offspring as well. But it also included more than just his immediate offspring and and all of the offspring that would come. It also, verses 9, 12, 15, 16, and 17, all say that the second party included every living creature, every beast of the earth for all future generations. And again, it, it bears repeating this covenant was not a covenant of redemption, it was a covenant of preservation. And it promised natural order and natural rhythms for the purpose of continuing life. Now this covenant of, uh, covenant of preservation was, was unilateral. And what that means is that the only terms that needed to be fulfilled in order for the covenant to continue were on God's part alone. He alone was responsible to keep the promise that he made. In other words, the covenant was an unbreakable covenant because there were no conditional terms for mankind to to fulfill and fail to fulfill. As I said earlier, the promise had nothing to do with our performance, with man's performance. The promise had everything to do with the kind intention of God's will and purpose, everything to do with his mercy and grace. He alone was responsible to fulfill this covenant. He didn't put it on anyone's shoulders but his own. And yet, the covenant didn't have obligations. 
The covenant had obligations for both Noah and his offspring. They were, they were actions that they were covenantally bound, bound to fulfill. And while they weren't conditional, they were, they were meant to, to show mankind how to live in the midst of the world as benefactors of the grace that God had bestowed upon them. And like the obligations that were established in creation, these obligations were also blessings. Look at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. So the first thing that God does after making this silent promise, or after making this promise within himself, or making this promise that only heaven heard, the first thing that he does is bless Noah and his sons. And he blessed them by giving them obligations. So, well, how can that be? How can those blessings be obligations? How can the obligations be blessings? Well, the blessings or, or the obligations were blessings because they would not be burdensome to fulfill and because the Lord was going to provide everything that they needed to be successful. The first here in verse 1 was to be fruitful and multiply. If we put it another way, the first obligation was for man to produce life. And this sounds familiar, does it not? Because it's the same mandate given at creation in chapter 1, verse 28. And you probably remember during our study of the first chapter, during that sermon that I said that this is a blessing and an obligation to be fulfilled that, in the words of Gordon Wenham, carried with it the implicit promise that God will enable man to fulfill it. And boys and girls, God created men and women and bestowed upon them the blessing and the honor of filling the earth by divinely enabling them to create living souls. In other words, God created men and He created women to produce children. And not just to produce children, but we remember we learned from Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, that He, he desired godly children like you. And whether in the context of creation with Adam and Eve, or whether in the context of recreation with Noah and his sons and their wives, the blessing of multiplication is bound to the blessing of marriage and complementarity within marriage. And that means that the blessing to be fruitful and multiply can only be fulfilled with a man and a woman and should only be fulfilled in the context of marriage. But this obligation is a blessing. Because as we read in Psalm 127, children are a blessing from the Lord. Our ability, the ability men and women have to, to be fruitful and multiply is only because of the power of God. It's only because of His power and His providential wisdom, His providential care and His work. And while there are, there are sadly those who, who desire to have children, but are unable to 
by no fault of their own. But in the words of Chad Van Dixwin, there needs to be an extraordinary reason for couples to refuse to have them. It is a mandate. And children, as you have heard me say, Time and time again, I try to take every opportunity that I can to tell you this because I never want you to forget it. And that is you are a blessing from the Lord. And the promises are for you as well as your parents. Please never forget that. Never, ever forget that. So the first obligation is that we is that we produce life. The second obligation that man has is to provide for life. The original creation mandate was to rule and to exercise dominion over the animals. And here we see that again. And it's not only reestablished here in verses 3 and 4, but it's also expanded. Here man is given the authority... Not only to rule and and to exercise dominion, but part of that rule and dominion that wasn't before and now is, is they have been, he was, man was given the authority to kill animals for food. But notice he was also restricted from eating the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You say, well, why is that? Well, two reasons. Well, one reason that can be broken down into two. God was providing parameters for, for Noah and his offspring, providing parameters that would eventually, one, separate God's people from pagan nations who would actually drink blood as a part of their rituals. But secondly, not just to separate God's people, but to prepare, prepare God's people for future understanding regarding blood, sacrifices, and its connection with atonement. All you have to do is go back to our study of Leviticus to understand that. But notice too, there's also a sense. There's a sense here in which the original creation mandate to work is also reaffirmed here as well. Because in order to eat, the ground had to be tilled. In order to now to to eat animals, they would need to be herded and they would need to be hunted. So we have work of farming and shepherding and ranching and animal management. It was all going to be necessary. It was still to be, it would still continue because the curse was still in place. It was still going to be difficult, but it was still to be done nonetheless. So the blessing was that the Lord expanded their diets from just vegetables to both vegetables and meat. And he also removed that distinction between clean and unclean that he had made at some point prior to them getting on the ark. And in so doing, he said, it's all good. Where have you heard that before? He's back to declaring everything good, both plants and animals. And in doing so, he, again, everything is good. And and this is something that Paul would later reaffirm twice to Timothy in chapters 4 and 6 of his first letter. So produce life, provide for life, 
Now look at the third obligation in verses 5 to 6. God says man is to protect life. This obligation was new. I did say that there was some continuity and that the Lord protected life. And He did protect life. You remember He protected Cain's life. It's not the same thing. The obligation was to not only refrain from murder, but to also exercise judgment upon those who committed murder through the means of capital punishment. God was clear that not only was man's life valuable because he had been created in the image of God, but he was also clear that his image bearers had the divine right and duty to hold others accountable and to exercise judgment in order to protect life that he himself had placed value on. Of course, we know from the New Testament that that isn't a role of the individual. Both Paul and Peter make it clear that It is to be done, or it is the role of the state to do that, a state instituted by God, the state who is given the sword to restrain evil and to protect human life. So man's to produce life, man's to provide for life, man's to protect life. In the words of Brown and Keel, they say God ordered all of human life in the Noahic covenant. Fruitfulness covers the realm of marriage and the family. Food encapsulates the realm of vocation and enjoyment of good things. Murder includes the arena of state and society. And natural law is evident in them all. And then they say this, both Christians and non-Christians participate in all these fields And all of these arenas are necessary for preserving human society. All of us are to be practicing these things. Well, that brings us to the last point, the sign. Look at verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I will establish or have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God was not only gracious in showing favor to Noah and extending the benefits of His favor to His sons through the covenant that He was establishing, but He was also gracious in establishing the sign. He was gracious in establishing this sign of confirmation. It was was a sign that would assure them of the promises or the promise that He had made. And boys and girls, what was that sign? 
the rainbow. Thank you, Zoom. The rainbow. And I want you to notice three things about this sign of the rainbow. First, it was public. Being a covenant with mankind, the bow was something that all mankind could see. It was in view for everyone. Unlike future signs that were private and observable only by the covenant community of God's people, the ones who would be the parties of the covenants, the redemptive covenants to come, this sign was regularly visible in nature because the covenant was made for all mankind and all the beasts of the field. So it was public rather than private. Secondly, it was not only public, it was common. It was common. It was ordinary. It was familiar. It was recognizable. Some argue or want to argue about whether the rainbow had already been present before. Or it seems to be a very common thing, something regularly observed. It wasn't, I mean, they're beautiful, but it wasn't necessarily special um, we, we could say it was mundane because what made it special, what made it special was the fact that God himself set it apart by his word from its common use to its holy use. In the words of Gordon Wenham, and now he's commenting on all the signs, but He wrote, it was God's word of consecration of these sometimes ordinary events or customs that made them significant pointers to his activity and purposes. God said the rainbow was a sign. Therefore it was. Man did not designate it as a sign. That was God's doing. And that leads me to the third thing. It was public, it was common, and it was also symbolic. It pointed to something. Some believe the rainbow was symbolic of of God's bow as as a bow and arrow. You can go back through history and you see that warriors are shown going out to battle with their with their bows vertical. But as they return after a battle, after being victorious, they're carrying their bows horizontal. So there are some that believe that the bow in the air is a sign of God's bow being hung up. The battle with evil on the earth being complete and peace now reigning. There are others that believe that the bow in its shape is is withholding the waters from above the firmament, the expanse, in order to not allow them to break forth ever again. But either way, no matter which you like, everyone agrees, because God Himself said so, that the bow is a sign of God's promise to mankind, not man's, not man's promise to God. It was a sign that man would see and remember God's promise to them. But more important, 
God himself says that it is a sign that he would remember. And that he would see and remember the promise that he made. Each time, each time a rainbow would appear, for us, each time a rainbow appears, mankind, we should remember that the rain had, had you know, at one point subsided and the floodwaters had receded. And it didn't have anything to do with the fact that there was no longer evil. Or that somehow man was deserving of, or not deserving of judgment. The rainbow reminded them that God was mindful of them. And as we said last week, because God was mindful of them, it caused Him to act toward them in gratuitous mercy. So every time the rainbow appeared, man would remember God is acting toward us in gratuitous mercy. But, but again, more important, God would remember that He had, He was mindful He had promised. He was extending gratuitous mercy. And that, again, continues to be true today for us. Now, what I want to attempt to do in our last couple minutes is I want to give us something to consider. I want to take, I fought with this. I want to take all of this and put it together. And give us something to consider in light of the fact that the covenant of preservation, this covenant with Noah, is applicable to us today because it's still in force. And it hasn't been rescinded. You and I both know it's obvious that the world and mankind remain in a fallen state. Right? Both. Sin, per- sin persists. Evil is not only present, it seems as though it's running rampant. Life-altering storms continue both literally and figuratively. Trauma produced, producing tragedies, both natural and man-made, abound. Just this week, just this week, the depravity of man's heart was put on full display. And it was put on full display by the blatant disregard for those created in God's image, particularly children whom he had set his love upon and he had set apart as holy. We've seen it in the heartless, the heartless responses of those whom he has called to ensure our freedom and safety. We've seen it in the unrestrained mocking of God's created order, in the ludicrous ridicule and scorn and contempt shown toward those who love and follow Christ. We've seen it in egregious disrespect for those who mourn. 
And it's easy. It's easy for righteous indignation to well up inside us. And that righteous indignation is directed at those who are benefactors of God's common grace and yet choose to mock Him. Those particularly who shamelessly kill or partner with and support those who kill the unborn, particularly those who mutilate or partner with or support the mutilation of children, And for those who drape themselves with rainbow flags, daring God to go back on His promise by blatantly flaunting their rebellion and laughing in His face, all the while knowing deep down inside He's not going to do it. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know that I've also been convicted this week. I've been convicted that no matter how righteous our indignation, we're also called to speak the truth in love, firmly, gently, and compassionately, and to pray for those And to pray for their salvation of any and all who display this type of contempt. Because their rejection and mockery of God whose common grace they spurn is going to incur an uncommon judgment. For while God is gracious, He is also just. And He will not be mocked. He will not be. Listen again to the words of Brown and Keel. One day without warning, the heavens will be torn in two like a newspaper. The sun will turn back as black as coal and the moon blood red. The mountains, tall and solid, seemingly indestructible, will be picked up like rag dolls and thrown away. The islands that are locked down to the seafloor will be sent skipping across the sea like a smooth stone. With the same ease with which God spoke the world into existence, He will send in His demolition team to tear it down. Common grace will come to an end, and when that seventh trumpet is blown and Christ rides forth, it will, sorry, it will come to an end when that seventh trumpet is blown and Christ rides forth on His glorious cloud. And brothers and sisters, He will judge the living and the dead. And those who are not in Christ will pay, they will pay themselves the eternal debt of sin that they owe. And they will experience the wrath of a holy and just God. But I admit to you that speaking the truth in love and firmly and also gently and compassionately And praying for the salvation of those who show such contempt is easier said than done. 
I think we need to admit that. Which leads me to this. One of the ways that God enables us to move toward and compassionately engage with those who taunt Him is to remind us how we ourselves fall short of His standard. For example, this is one example, and it involves the protection of life. Listen to questions 135 and 136 of the larger catechism. What are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. But just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil." Comforting and giving assistance to the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. Question 136, what are the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immodest use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to be or tends to the destruction of life of any. You can feel it. But reminding us of how we fall short of His standard alone doesn't enable us to respond to others the way we should. And that's because the law does not give us the power to do that which it commands. What moves us to response, having remembered that we fall short, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You see, we, like like Noah, we lack merit and are full of demerit. And yet, God determined to show His favor toward us. God chose to set His love on us. He chose to be merciful and gracious. He called us to Himself. He granted us faith. And we've placed that faith in Christ. Christ who took on the wrath and judgment that we deserved upon Himself and paid the debt of our sin that we could never pay. He saved us. Not based upon our performance in any way. In Him we've been forgiven. 
We've been forgiven much. He's paid our eternal debt for our sin. His fulfillment of the law. He did all that I just read. And that's been credited to us. We continue to fall short every day in our own way. And yet His grace abounds still more. And it's out of that abundance. It's out of that overflow that we are able by His grace to compassionately and gently yet firmly respond and to pray for others as we should. The purpose of the Noahic Covenant is to provide time necessary to bring about God's plan of redemption as He always intended. And during that time, we can be sure of two things. Storms are going to come, literally and figuratively. They're going to come over and over and over again, and there will be times, there will be breaks in those storms, and the rainbow is going to appear. And it's going to remind us and assure us of God's promise. And while that's going on, during that time, Christ has promised to continue to build His church. He will continue to build His church. And He will continue to protect her until He returns. And so our two responses to that are, may that be so. And come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you allow us and enable us to receive the Word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. For your glory and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray these things. Amen.